You know, everybody is uh, looking for an edge. Uh, they're looking for a heads up on the competition. They want a, a leg up, if you will, on the competition. Everybody, if, if, if I talk about sports, you know, one of the things that I think about is, is uh, uh, HGH, uh, human growth hormones, you know, steroids, right? Uh, I think of like three, three names just pop into my mind that these guys were willing to do anything to get an edge, uh, Barry Bonds. And there's a, uh, there's a so certain amount of shame associated with him. Now, Lance Armstrong, the cyclist, right? Uh, Alex Rodriguez, you know, all have, all have these clouds over them because they were willing to do anything to get an edge on the competition. In fact, I recently heard about it a week ago, Lance Armstrong, the cyclist, who had, who had for years and years had denied that he ever juiced or ever, you know, shot steroids, uh, he had to come clean. The evidence was there. But he said about a week ago, he said, given the opportunity, I don't know if you ever heard this, but he said this about a week ago, given the opportunity, he would do it all over again just to have an edge over the competition. That's how serious he wanted to win. Think about it. It's the same way in business. What, what, what corporations will do to get an edge over the competition is amazing. What, what, one of the things that corporations do is, is corporate espionage. They spy on one another. They steal trade secrets. They get involved with uh, insider training or trading, rather, just to get uh, an edge on the competition. Uh, think about the same thing is true uh, for nations. Nations spy on one another. They break into uh, government computers. They, they steal government secrets. In fact, China, a couple of weeks ago, revealed their latest bomber, uh, which is identical to our stealth bomber. The technology is, is exactly the same. Where do you think they got that from? They got that because in competition with nations, they wanted to get their, their edge over the competition. Think about uh, the uh, weight loss in industry. Uh, Jenny Craig, uh, Nutrisystems. Uh, what else is there? Weight Watchers, all, all, all those guys will do anything to get ahead of the competition. I got an email the other day. I was going to bring my phone. I left it upstairs. I got an email the other day from a company that said, lose 35 pounds, eat three delicious desserts. <laughs> you know, and I love these companies that say, they say, take this pill, take our product and lose weight while you sleep. <laughs> you know, I mean, how dumb can you be and still breathe? But, but it's true, you know. And everybody wants this edge, you know. A uh, couple of years ago, I, I, brought, I brought some of my racquetball equipment here uh, to kind of share with you today. A uh, couple of years ago, well, tw 25 years ago, uh, I used to play. Yeah, it was a couple of years ago. It seems like a couple of years ago. A few years ago, I, I used to play racquetball maybe about twice a week, sometimes even three times a week. But, but I played with a group of guys who were so competitive that that winning really was everything. I mean, I, I love racquetball. I, I still play once in a while. Uh, it's a great sport. You know, it's, it's great exercise because you have fun. You don't feel like you're exercising. That's, that's the good part about it. But we got, we got so cutthroat. In fact, one of the games that you play in racquetball is called cutthroat, which is, which is two players 
against the one who was serving, and, and they, they rotate. And, and we really were cutthroat. So, so I looked for any kind of advantage or any kind of edge or any kind of heads up on, on my competition. So I shot up steroids. No, I'm only kidding. <laughs> no, no, I, I, no I, did, I did everything ethical and legal. And, and one, of the, one of the first things I did was I, I found, you remember, remember they used to have video stores back in the day? Yeah, you went into a place where you picked out a video some of you don't know any uh, of what I'm talking about. But, but, but what I did was, uh, where is that thing? <laughs> Honey, where is my... I, brought, I brought, actually brought a videotape, and it's not in the bag. <laughs> Trust me, there are some of you I know who have been born into the world where you have no idea what a videotape looks like, and I was going to provide that. It's apparent. Oh, here it is. This is a videotape, guys. <laughs> Imagine that. It has tape in it, and you put it in a machine, and it's called a VCR, and it plays. Now, if I told you what a, an MP3 is, you guys would right away know what that is. But, but uh, So anyway, I, I, I found out there's a few a racquetball instructional tapes that gave you kind of a heads up on, on, on some of the, the nuances of the sport. So, so I, I learned strategy. I didn't tell anybody else I found these videos, but, but I, found, I found strategy. I found that there's information about how to, how to hit the ball in a certain way to get a kill shot by just snapping your wrist in a certain way. I found out that, that there's a, a certain amount of uh, strategy in terms of how to return the ball, how to serve the ball. So I was looking for that edge. In fact, in fact I, I went out. Uh, my competitors had like the run-of-the-mill kind of... Uh, from Herman's, remember Herman's, the uh, athletic store? The, the run-of-the-mill rackets, it was about maybe $30, $40, right? I had, to, I had to have an edge. I went out, I bought Behold the Murata. <laughs> the Murata is, is graphite. When, 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 this, when you hit the ball with this, your hand doesn't vibrate or, 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 or just fall apart. No, no. You get a great, great shot. Listen, let me tell you how much it costs. Three hundred and twenty dollars. Twenty-five years ago, it took me several years before I had the courage to tell my wife I spent three hundred and twenty dollars on a racket. Right? It must have been a bad day for me that day. Listen, I, I found I found out I found out it's true. I found out that that your run of the mill sneakers. Do you call them sneakers anymore? Tennis shoes, sneakers, yeah. Your run-of-the-mill sneakers with rubber soles aren't good enough on a court surface, on a wood surface. You need gum soles that will give you that extra step or two. And that means all the difference when you're playing racquetball. That extra step, it, it has great traction. Do you know how hard it is to find gum shoes, gum sneakers, size 14? I literally, I will show you the inside here. They came from England. I had to import them. And yes, they did come with oars, by the way, the size 14. I did everything I could possibly get or do to get an edge on the competition. And I think that's the way we were built. We, we, we want that edge on the competition. Now, now uh, you know, let me just say this. If you're here today and you're not a follower of Jesus, we normally have church upstairs, all right? But, but beside that, you know, what I want you to know is that we, we are so glad that you're here. We, we welcome you. We hope you feel at home. 
And we want you to know that God has wisdom for us in the Word of God, the Bible, that, that, we, that we know is God's message to us and that we believe that everyone can benefit from the wisdom that comes from God. So we're going to look at a couple of different things today, and we're going to talk about God's great faithfulness. So, so, so let, me, let me ask you this. What, what's your edge? What, what, what have you done in your life to, to get that, you know, leg up on the competition? For me, one of the other things I did was I married a, a woman who's smarter than me, you know, and she is a math genius and she's so smart and she's so cute. But, but, but and that's true. And, and, and so for me, that was an edge up, you know, that was, that was a heads up. But, you know, what, what about some of you? Maybe you look toward education as being your edge, you know, in life. Well, let me say this. What about the edge for a child of God? What about an edge for a believer in Christ? What is our edge? And I want to tell you, I believe that God has information for us. He has an edge for us. And he wants us to understand that with God, all things are possible. But not only are all things possible, but that if he is for us, who can be against us? In other words, there is no competition for us when God is for us. If God is for us, who can be against us? So I want to talk to you about the believer's edge. In fact, the Bible not only says, if God be for us, who can be against us? It gives us a list of things that we become more than conquerors through, no matter what it is that we face. Now, now, now we, we, we do face uh, battlefields in, in at least three different spiritual realms, the world, flesh, and the devil. And you know what? The Bible is clear. It is I, I love the, the clarity of the Bible. It, it's not politically correct. You know, it doesn't waver as to, as to say that our enemy is the devil, that we have an adversary, the devil, who goes about like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. There's no hesitation in the Bible revealing that, that we are wrestling or engaging in a struggle against spiritual wickedness in high places. Well, the Bible clearly tells us that we have an adversary, the devil, who goes about like a roaring lion. Let me share a quote with you from a guy by the name of Sam Storms. I believe it puts it into perspective. He says this. He says, ignorance of Satan's schemes and the reluctance to confront the enemy in biblically appropriate ways have opened the door to untold damage, oppression, and spiritual bondage in the name of cultural sophistication and intellectual respectability, which are code words, he says, for pride, the demonic has either been denied altogether or at best relegated to a pre-scientific medieval mentality that is beneath the dignity of forward-thinking people of the 21st century. In doing so, many in the professing church have opened wide the doors to demonic intrusion and are now suffering its debilitating and soul-numbing effects. An unwillingness to identify the enemy and to realize that, that we have an adversary, this is the reason why we need an edge. This is the reason why we, we need to have a leg up on, on all that is coming against us. And, and clearly, the Bible teaches us that greater is he that is in us than he that is in the world. We do not have to fear. We have an adversary who's already been defeated, we have all authority and power over these wicked and unclean spirits, right? But, but God has allowed them to still, you know, kind of like be, on, be, be out on bail, 
The sentence is passed. The, the verdict is final. The outcome of the victory is sure. But it's like, it's like the enemy is out on bail for a season. And it's to fulfill and suit God's purposes. So I want to talk to you about what I think is the believer's edge. What is our heads up so that no matter what we face in life, no matter how difficult things are, no matter how, how severe the battle becomes, that we have a leg up or an edge over the enemy. And I want to talk to you about God's great faithfulness. Listen to this verse that Paul says concerning God and believers. He says, God is faithful, 1 Corinthians 1, 9, by whom you were called into the fellowship of his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. God is faithful. And God has called us into the fellowship. The word fellowship there means partnership. It is a, an undissolvable relationship. It is a union between Christ and you as a believer that is, that is like a marriage that is inseparable and, and un, undivorceable, if that's correct. That God has provided for us a relationship, a union in Christ in which it will never be, it will never be dissolved. And so we have this assurance. Jesus said it like this, I give to them eternal life and they shall never perish. Neither shall anyone pluck them out of my hand. If you want to know about the security that we have in Christ, it's secure in Jesus, okay? So I want to talk to you about God's faithfulness. And what does it mean when we say God is faithful? It means that he's not fickle, that he doesn't change his mind, that he's not like some leaders who, who flip-flop and who, and who renege on promises, who, who go back and forth uh, between uh, what they promised and, and what they actually do. I love what Jeremiah said in Lamentations 3.22. He says, his compassions fail not. They are new every morning. Great is his faithfulness. Great is his faithfulness. I mentioned uh, uh, Jeremiah a few weeks ago when I preached. And uh, I said that Jeremiah was called the weeping prophet because of the the great burden that he carried of delivering a message to the nation that they were going off into captivity. He would have sunk beneath his own sorrow had he not had by revelation the understanding that God is faithful. In fact, it was Jeremiah who promised that 70 years would be accomplished upon Israel's captivity, but then God would bring them back. You see, God is faithful to his promise. It's impossible for him to lie. It's impossible for him to break a promise. All of his promises are true. All of his warnings are also true. They will come to pass. In fact, it is, it is more likely that the earth and the universe would dissolve and come into nothing rather than one of the tiniest markings of God's word not come to pass. Let me give you three examples this morning. Uh, of uh, what I'm talking about in terms of faithfulness to help strengthen your faith, to help, to help you understand that there is an edge that you have as a believer in Christ. Or if you're, you're looking to become a follower of Christ, I want you to know that God is faithful and you can trust him. Let, let, me, let me give you a couple examples. Number one, Abraham. Abraham is an important character in the Old Testament because God began to deal with the individual and Abraham is called the father of us all. He's called the father of the faith and that we're blessed with faithful Abraham, right? So 
So, so God says to Abraham in Genesis 15, before he has any children at all, no, no children, he's waiting for the children to come. But God foretells that his descendants are going to be in captivity and enslaved in a land, not theirs, for 400 years. But then he will bring them out with great substance. He will judge that nation. This is what God prophesied. This is what God foretold to Abraham, even before he had one single child, right? He says, they will be in a land for 400 years enslaved. And, and, and we know that to be the true history of what happened to Israel. But, but listen to this. 100 years passes by. 200 years passes by. Three, 400 years did God forget his promise. L- listen to this in Exodus 12, 41. It says, and it came to pass at the end of the 430 years. Now, why 30 years? Because the first 30 years that the children of Israel were in Egypt was under Joseph as the prime minister of Egypt. And it was good then. And, and, and they had the favor of Pharaoh on them because of Joseph. But when Joseph died, there was another Pharaoh that came to power who didn't know Joseph and began to oppress the children of Israel. And as a result of that, notice what it says. It says, and it came to pass at the end of the 430 years on that very same day it came to pass that all of the families of the lord went out of the land of egypt on that very same day to the to the year to the day that god had prophesied that god had predicted 400 years they would be in the land so not only is god faithful to his promise but he's precisely faithful to his promise to the hour to the day to the second that's something that we can trust in Eight centuries before Christ. Eight centuries. I mean, that's a, you know, for us, for, for God that, you know, a, a thousand years is, a, is as one day and one day is as a thousand years. But for us human beings, you know, eight centuries is a long time. The prophet Isaiah in that eighth century before Christ said, there's a sign that's going to be given. Behold, a virgin will conceive and bear a child. And we'll call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. Now, 100, 200, 300, 750 years went by. Where is the promise of the Messiah? Where is his coming? Paul tells us in Galatians chapter 4, he says that in the fullness of time, God sent forth his son, made of a woman, born, born of a woman, excuse me, made under the law to redeem them that were under the law. God precisely fulfills his promise. Therefore, we can have great encouragement and great confidence because God is not one that he should lie or break a promise. That's the edge that you and I need to negotiate through this life that's sometimes very difficult, where you have storms and the winter that comes from hell, you know? And it seems like when, when, when Doug mentioned Easter the other day, something leaped on the inside of me. Easter means spring, Spring is coming. I believe it. In fact, in fact, you know, I, I don't believe in global warming, you know, just personal, you know, uh, because God said that there would, be, there would be summer, there would be winter, there would be fall until the end of time, you know? And uh, it's going to happen just as God said. All things are under his control. Anyway, I'm getting off my subject. There are some times in the seasons of this life where where it seems like heaven is silent. 
So we need an edge. There, there are times in our life when it seems like, it seems like God's loving kindness is, is our experience is, is, is refuting God's loving kindness. There are times in our life when, when there's betrayals, where there's disappointments far more often than, than, than we would dare to like them. There, there are times in our lives when, when we ourselves are unfaithful, but there is one who remains faithful, one who is ever faithful to his promise. And really, it is the greatness of our Savior that I want us to look at today. I, I don't want to talk to you about the devil as much as I want to talk to you about the one who has conquered the devil by the power of the cross. You see, the cross is the wisdom of God and the power of God. And I tell you what, of all the attributes of God that we could talk about, and, and, and I, I glory in his love and mercy, as we all do. We, we, we draw strength and encouragement from, from the, the, the loving kindness of God, from, from his wisdom, from his power, that God is infinite in his power. When I, when I think about the eternality of God, it blows me away. You know, like you, you, your mind, it's like, all right, when, when did God begin? Well, he didn't have a beginning. God always was. Uh, wait, that doesn't compute. I don't understand that, but I believe that. But of all the things that the Bible reveals about the nature of God and the heart of God, while, they're, while they all bless us, the one thing that even the youngest child of God could lay a hold of. See, you don't have to be a theologian to fully comprehend that God is faithful. But what we need is to, is to see that God is faithful and that will give us the edge when, when there's a dark shadow hanging over us, when it seems like the enemy is breathing down our neck. To know that you're faithful means that, to know that God is faithful means that you will not sink far, further than God will allow you to. I'm persuaded that this is one of the reasons why Paul said, faithful is he who called you into the partnership of his son. And that is an indissolvable, undissolvable relationship. Uh, his loyalty to you and me is greater than our loyalty is to him. His commitment to you and to me is greater than our commitment is to him. Now, I just want to give you one more example before we close this morning. And, and, and that is the worst case, the best case scenario. Well, what do I mean by that? It's the, it's the, it's the worst case of, of a man and it's the best case of God. In other words, man's extremities becomes God's possibilities. Here's the, here's the background of the story I want to kind of relate to you today. Uh, Jesus and his disciples celebrate the Passover meal. And uh, Judas is now filled with Satan. Satan fills the heart of Judas. And he goes out and he arranges with the high priest and the Pharisees and scribes to betray Jesus or to arrest Jesus, right? And then Jesus tells the 11 that are remaining, he says to them, tonight, guys, all of you, every one of you is going to deny me. And they all say, no, there's, there's, there's no, we, we, we would never deny you. Peter says, Lord, everybody else may deny you, but not me. I'm not going to be the guy to deny you. Jesus says, says, Peter, before the rooster crows tonight, you will deny me not once, not twice, but three times. You will deny me three times before 
the rooster crows. Peter says, Lord, I am willing to die with you. And then Jesus reveals the strategy of Satan, which is his strategy for all of us to attack our faith. And so Jesus says this. He says, Simon, Simon. Now, Jesus changed his name. His name was originally Simon. Jesus changed his name to Peter. That's a throwback to what he was before. But whenever the name is repeated twice like that, it was a sign of affection. Martha, Martha, Mary, Mary. Jesus is not angry at Peter. Jesus is not upset with Peter. Jesus knows exactly what's going down, and Jesus loves Peter. And so he says to him, Simon, Simon, Satan has desired to sift you like wheat. In other words, Satan's plan, his desire is to chew you up and spit you out. He wants to destroy your faith. But listen to what Jesus said. He said, but I've prayed for you that your faith would not fail. I've prayed for you, Peter, that your faith would not fail. What what is Jesus clearly saying? He is saying that even before Peter falls, even before the fray of the battle and the heat of the battle takes place, Peter, I'm not letting go of you. Peter, I'm not going to let you sink beneath, beneath my ability to rescue you. Peter, Peter, you may deny me, but I will never deny you. And you know what? I, I've, I've read through commentators and I've, and I've listened to other pre- preachers talk about this particular portion of Scripture. And you know, it, it, is, it is true that there are some things that we could learn here about Peter needing humility and Peter's you know, self-reliance and his self-confidence was, was really the thing that got him in the way that he was arguing with Jesus, that he was, he was saying to Jesus, you know, Jesus was saying this and Peter was saying, no, not that that you never, you never should argue with Jesus, you know, and submit to Jesus, right? There's a lot of lessons that we could learn here, but I think they missed the, the big picture. And the big picture really is, is not so much Peter's frailty because we're all vulnerable. We, we, are all, we all stumble in many ways. I think to, for me, the big picture is this incredible Savior that we have. Who is, who is so faithful that even, even when I am faithless, the Bible says that he remains faithful. He cannot deny himself. You know what, you know what that means for us? That, that, that means that no matter what we've ever gone through, no matter how many times we stumble and fall, he's there to help us and pick us up. You see, because we, we are saved on the basis of his greatness, not our greatness, not our loyalty, but rather his loyalty unto him who was able to keep us from falling and to present us faultless before his presence with joy. That is the joy of the church that we possess. Now, if you know the gospel story, if you know what happens, Peter does make a comeback. He does make a recovery. In fact, Jesus said that I'm going to use your fall so that you will now in turn strengthen your brethren. When you come back to me, Jesus said, what I want you to do is I want you to strengthen the brothers. And his testimony, his life becomes that of a comeback. And, and, and we all draw strength from that, that. No matter how far we have fallen like Peter into denying the Lord, that there is, that there is a God who can bring, bring life out of the ashes. 
He makes, he makes beauty for ashes. He gives the oil of joy for mourning. The garments of praise for the spirit of heaviness. He's able to do this. And if you understand that, you have an edge today. You have a, a leg up and a heads up on the competition. Listen to this quote from Sinclair Ferguson. He said, religious people are always profoundly disturbed when they discover that they are not and never have been true Christians. Religious people, they're they're surprised when they find out that they're not true Christians. Thinking that I deserve heaven is a sure sign you have no understanding of the gospel. That we are saved by grace through faith alone in Christ alone. It is not of human achievement. It is on the basis of our great Savior. So, so, so this points to his greatness and not our own. Paul said this, this is a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom he says, I am, not was, I am the worst. But for the very reason I was shown mercy so that in me, the worst of sinners... Jesus Christ might display his unlimited patience as an example for those who would believe upon him and receive eternal life. Paul says, I'm a prototype. Me, the the, the guy who was responsible for the murder of Christians, responsible for jailing many people and for compelling them to, to curse the name of Jesus. Me, Paul, the worst of sinners. He's gonna be there standing before the throne of God, arrayed in in white robes. So will Peter be there, the guy who denied Jesus three times. Do you know on the day of Pentecost, he said to the Jewish people, he said, you denied the Holy One and desired a murderer to be released. What about you, Peter? No, no. You see, Jesus came into the world to save sinners. And you know what? The, The greatness about our Savior is he takes our sins and he separates them as far as the east is from the west. He casts them into the depths of the sea and then he puts a sign up and he says, no fishing allowed. He doesn't bring them up. And you know the amazing thing about the story of Peter? You never find where Jesus brings up his denial again after this point in the Gospel of Luke. In the book of Acts or or, or the subsequent meetings of of Jesus with the disciples, he, he never brings up Peter's failure because that's the kind of God whom we serve. There is going to be a day in which the Bible says that they that are around the throne of God and around the Lamb will be arrayed in white garments. I I, I suspect that not only Peter will be there and Paul will be there, but, but, but there will be the woman who was caught in the act of adultery. She will be standing there in white robes. There will be the woman who was at the well. Remember her? She had five husbands and the man that she was living with was not her husband. She will be there. I expect to see a man that I met about 40 years ago at a prayer meeting in Queens. He had been in prison for a number of years for having killed his wife because he came home unexpectedly and he found his wife in the arms of another man and he killed his wife and he went to prison. But in prison, found Jesus Christ and found freedom. I expect to see the woman that confessed that she had an abortion And she was so broken up by that fact and filled with guilt all those years, but came to a saving knowledge of Christ and the guilt was gone. 
See, there is a fountain filled with blood. The Bible says it flows, or rather the songwriter says it, it flows with Emmanuel's blood. It, there's a fountain filled with blood that flows from Emmanuel's veins. Sinners plunge beneath that flood, lose all their guilt and stains. The reason why we can stand before the throne of God in, in, in perfectly white robes is because we've washed our robes in the blood of the Lamb, in the innocent, perfect Son of God who gave himself for us. My bottom line this morning is very simply this. There's no greater edge than to know and to act upon his great faithfulness. Now, let me just say this before we close. It's one thing to intellectually agree with me and say, yeah, pastor, I believe that God is faithful. I want to ask you this. Are you acting upon God's faithfulness? God has exceeding great and precious promises, but are you, are you expecting him to fulfill those promises? So let me read this again. There's no greater edge than to know and to act on his great faithfulness. Let's pray together. So Father, I thank you so much for the opportunity to share your word, O oh God, Lord, with your people today. I pray, O oh Lord, that you would strengthen our faith in the faithfulness of God, that we will come and appreciate and understand, O oh God, that you are great and gracious to all that call on your name. Amen.